it's absolutely transformative. I was, you know, there was a period there where I was, I was completely lost. I was just genuinely like, outwardly, I think everyone's just going, oh, Mez is the same, Mez is the same. But inside, I was just burning. I just, and it was about my confidence. It was about my identity. As I said earlier, you know, my identity and my confidence are so intrinsically linked that I had lost it and I didn't know how to get it back for myself. Now, I was the person who gave it to me in the beginning. And then I allowed other people and other circumstances, I allowed that to be taken away from me. So I had to regain that. I'm Katrina Blowers and welcome to Claiming Your Confidence, the podcast dedicated to reframing the confidence conversation and uncovering the hacks to conquer fear, imposter syndrome and the self-doubt holding us back from chasing our big dreams. I believe courage is contagious. So each week I'll bring you heart to hearts with my favorite people sharing their biggest confidence challenges and how they overcame them and inspire us with gems of wisdom they've learned along the way. Thanks so much for listening. Claiming your confidence starts now. Comedian Merrick Watts makes millions of people happy. I'm lucky enough to have laughed with him on a daily basis. We co-hosted a number one breakfast show together on the Nova Network in Sydney for around six years. He was one half of American Rosso and it somehow ended up as my job on the show to keep them in line. Not sure I really succeeded there. As well as comedy, he's acted on Hollow Men and Underbelly and is a regular on TV shows like Thank God You're Here and The Project. And now he's literally invented his dream job with his business, Grapes of Mirth, taking comedy to wineries. He's also a husband to the beautiful Georgie and has two children. Now, this episode was such a treat for me. Firstly, we kind of got to relive being on radio together, but behind the comedic facade, Merrick is a really deep thinker who's not afraid of sharing his vulnerabilities, and I knew he would have some really great insights on confidence to share. Now, in this fantastic episode, he gets incredibly honest with us and reveals how he had to claim his confidence again just recently after having to assess everything in his life after leaving radio. He gets really raw about what it took for him to get out of that dark place, from seeking therapy to medication, and finally his epic morning routine he now does every day. And I know this story will inspire a lot of you who've gone through a reinvention process at some point in your lives. I also get really honest with him. And for the first time, I tell him how I had a panic attack live on air as I was reading the news three years ago and how to ultimately changed my life and my way of seeing the world and led me to developing this platform. Merrick shares the moment he first realised he was funny and when he knew comedy was his calling. We talk about the utterly crazy things we did on the radio, from helicopters to pirate ships, the unlimited budgets and having the confidence to dream up big, ridiculous, creative ideas. The fundamental principle of never being afraid of the word no and how he believes it's been a major part of his success. And he fills us in on the work 
work he does with former SAS members and what he's learned about rebuilding confidence from being involved in programs with former elite soldiers. This is so interesting. And of course, for everything we mention, including Merrick's wine tips he gives us at the end, you can find in the show notes at www.katrinablowers.com. So without any further ado, let's claim our confidence with Merrick Watts. All right, let's do this. How are you? How the bloody hell are you? I'm great, Blousey. I'm really nice to speak to you, and it's really nice to be talking to you about something that I actually care about. Well, not that you know we could, we could talk about anything, <laughs> and I'd, I'd care about having a chat to you about it. But I think I think what you're kind of hitting with this confidence stuff is great. I think it's a really really good thing, and I hate to use the word empowerment and empowering, but you know seriously, a, a huge part of I believe a huge part of happiness in life is about confidence. Oh my God. It, and you don't realize it until you hit a point where you struggle with it. And for me, like I always thought confidence was my superpower. I really did. Cause I was one of those kids who just used to do, you know, me, I, you used to give me shit all the time. Cause you said that I was like a 40 year old living in a 20 year old's body. And I was a kid where I was like a super nerd where I used to do like public speaking and debating and it wasn't until a couple of years ago where I had a panic attack live on air that I was like, oh my God, confidence isn't the superpower that I thought it was. And I had to get it back again. And yeah, underpins everything. Can I ask you, Blasey, why did you have a panic attack? What triggered that? Yeah. So I was going through a divorce and even though it was not... I guess by standards of other people's divorces, it wasn't a messy divorce. It was pretty amicable. Um, We were really civil about it and really adult and, you know, all of that stuff. It was still really stressful, really stressful. And you lose friendships. You take a really big look at your life and all the decisions you've made about, you know, getting to the point where you're at. And I guess because I always thought confidence was my superpower and my job was like a safe haven for me, um, I was just sweeping all that stress under the carpet and not dealing with it. And then one night, which was the highest rating news night of the week, which is a Sunday night where like half a million people tune in, I had a panic attack live on air just in the opening titles. And then I had to sit there for a whole hour and do a bulletin live to air with just me on the desk no co-host just me <laughs> wow uh so that was pretty wow. shit <laughs> but, what, but talk but about what a wake-up call right yeah but I mean what, what was the trigger what did, did you just have a realization that you know that there was you're under stress and now you're under the spotlight as well was it the combination of things um so I think you know I, like I always get adrenaline and butterflies before I'm about to do any live TV and I love that normally, but because I guess I had that residual stress in my body and it's like you keep adding water to your glass and my water level was at the brim and I didn't realize it. Um, that's a metaphor, Mez, for stress. <laughs> and got then it. I had, got it. um, got it. <laughs> got it. <laughs> and then I had, I guess that just the butterflies of going to do live TV just tipped me over the edge and, God, it just rocked my confidence so much and I then started to get anxiety about having another panic attack and um, and I almost walked away from my job because I was like, I can't deal with this. I just don't know if I can ever do this again. So I had yeah, to look at you now. and rebuild 
everything. Oh, look at me now. Yeah. You've rebuilt yourself. You're like you're like a transformer. It's just you've rebuilt yourself into a better machine. <laughs> but what it has made me do is when I was brave enough to start having like being vulnerable and having conversations with people about, well, hey, this has happened to me, which took a bit. Because, you know, I didn't want people looking at me reading the news and going, oh, is she going to have another one? You know, is she, is she, you know, a basket case? I didn't want people thinking that about me. But when I started to talk openly about it, it's amazing how many other people who you would think have their shit together and they don't. Like everyone no, struggles with no this does. No one does. No one does. Here's the thing, right? No one is perpetually happy. If they are, they are insane, right? Like if you are <laughs> perpetually happy, you, you're broken. Something has – you've broken a wire in your brain because we are not designed as an animal to be perpetually happy, right? So that's rubbish. And every single time we always see, you know, the, the, the glowing parts of other people. So we like to think that, uh, you know, we've got the darkness because they've got the, sh- the, the light because – that's what we're seeing. It's a projection. Light projects more than darkness does. So we see the light in other people and we think, oh, they've got it great. You know, they're doing better than with this situation with COVID or, or uh, you know, recession or whatever it is. They're dealing with that better or uh, personal circumstances. They're dealing with it better. But that is actually garbage as well. Everybody is unhinged. We're all unhinged. Just people <laughs> like me are more unhinged, but we've got wicked awareness about how unhinged we are and when you know first of all you get awareness then you get acceptance yeah yeah one of the reasons i really wanted to yeah, talk to you that's, sorry, that's, that's supposed to be a rebuttal that's where you're supposed to go but merrick you're not unhinged <laughs> but, but you didn't no, i, I, I left a crazy. massive gap there yeah yeah but like that was your bit to say merrick you're not un, more unhinged than anybody else and I, I was there for a long time on my own and enough time i had two panic attacks in that period where I was waiting for you to say that I'm not crazy. Oh, come on. You know, <laughs> I don't think you're crazy just by the by, but that's too little too late. Um, what, what, I, what I was going to say was one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you about this is because having worked with you pretty closely at like crazy hours of the day where you do have to see each other for who they really are, um, your job and you, you do it so beautifully, your job is to make people happy and that's what you do. But you also, as well as being somewhat ridiculous sometimes with the way that you bring that joy into people's lives and we all love that you also think really deeply about the big things in life um and I love that about you and that's something that I guess not many people who know you as Merrick the comedian would know no I mean it's it's a great thing about me is that the majority of people and I've done a very good job of convincing them this too is that the majority of people uh think I'm stupid and that's, that's, uh, no, they do, they do, they really do. Uh, I've had lots of people say to me many, 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 many times, you're not as dumb as I thought you were, Merrick. And I, oh I still get God. it. Yeah, it happens all the time. But actually it's because, you know, what I like and what I enjoy is being a jester, is being a clown and not necessarily playing low brow, but I don't feel that I need to exert my intelligence or my acumen for anything um, in comedy. I don't feel that I, I don't feel like I need to espouse anything in those terms. That's not my forum for it. I, I like comedy for, for being a silly child. And when I do comedy, I like to think of myself more like a kid. You know, that's where the joy comes from. It's the playfulness that I enjoy about comedy. And I don't like 
you know, overly analytical comedy from myself. I don't like overly, um, I don't like um, nasty comedies, you know, blousy. I don't like comedians who um, take the take the piss out of other people and hurt other people at the, you know, at other people's expense. I like to do it to myself. I like teasing people. That's fun. Um, yeah, but it's, I know that. Yeah, you see? You see? <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I do, I do kind of, I like to have, the comedy part of my world is the silly child, and, and I've I've kind of perpetuated that image. And, and I don't think it, it doesn't bother me at all. But um, you know, kind of away from the mic, yeah. There's lots of things that I'm a very complicated individual. I have very um, uh, unique tastes in things. I have very um, strong opinions on some things that I don't. That people wouldn't know about me. I you know I read a lot more than I think people would um, imagine. I think you know I study a lot more than people would think I do and I just keep it quiet. I just keep it to myself and I go about my own stuff in my own private time. And it's two, there's two very different, you know, styles of Merrick and that's my, I, you know, I look at myself and I believe very, very heavily in, you know, the principles of balance and the principles of yin and yang and the principle, that's, the, you know, the basic principles of the universe. And if you can see them in yourself and you can see them in your own personality, it makes life a lot easier. So, you know, I understand that at yeah. times I need to be serious and at times, I need to be contemplative or, or whatever else. But also too, you know, sometimes I just need to be a moron. And I actually, I really do like being a moron a lot more. The dumber <laughs> I feel when I'm performing, the happier I am. Yeah. And you've made so many people, including me, like those years that we worked together and we did um, those ridiculous skits together on your TV show where usually I was the fall guy for whatever crazy antics, whatever character you played. It just, like, I still look back on those as being some of the happiest times in my whole career. They were amazing. Yeah, it was great. And that was an awesome time for me. It's, what's great about, you know, ageing and, and changing is that, uh, you know, you can look back and it's it's not about people, th- I think, look their careers too much about, uh, you know, peaks or, or highlights or, or anything like that. But what it is is it's actually about how you feel in circumstances. The most, the most a, a time in my life when I was earning the most money had, you know, probably the highest profile, I was possibly, you know, one of the unhappiest times in my entire life. And people go, what has it, has it possible? It's because there's... There was unseen pressures. There was um, unseen forces at, at play, and it was just there was just different stuff going on. Whereas, you know, I look back at the early days of my radio career, particularly at Triple J, and then the early days of Nova, the first five years at Nova, and they were just it was just like going to a, a gigantic children's playground for adult humans. It was ridiculous. Mm. You know, you'd, you'd go to a place where people would say. You go, I've got an idea and it is so stupid and it's going to cost $30,000 and somebody go, that's great. I'll go and get thirty grand. let us piss it up against the wall, Merrick. Great idea. And it was not a great idea. It was never a great idea. They were all bad. <laughs> what are you thinking of in particular when you're thinking of those ideas, those crazy ideas? What can you not believe that people said yes to back then? Oh God, there's just so many. It's like it, it, like it's just there's like a list of things. Like you know, we'd go away on trips overseas, or you know, we'd go to oh, just you know what it was like. You just you you go. Um, uh, we need two helicopters to go and fly to the Blue Mountains. Oh, okay, we'll get you two helicopters. Um, you know, just 
wasteful amounts of money, which was a fantastic feeling at the time. But also, too, what was great is, you know, you'd, you'd say, oh, look, um, we want to do uh, reenact like a school camp, but for adults where you just go to a, a really crappy school camp uh, playground. Everyone goes, why would anybody want to go there? And I go, I don't know, it just feels right. And people go, okay, and then they just support that and get it done. And I think that it's the, the great thing about um, – you know, working for a commercial radio station, it's actually, it's not about the money that you get. And I've realized this more in hindsight. It's about the ability to facilitate your dreams. Like you can have an idea and that idea is actually going to come to life. Now, everybody has great ideas all the time, every single day. You know, I have creative concepts every single day that I would love to just bring to life. But when you're working at a commercial radio station with an almost unlimited budget, you go to them and say, um, I want to have a party on a pirate ship. And everyone just goes, great idea. <laughs> That's a great idea. Where's a pirate ship, Merrick? I've got no idea. Find me one. Okay. And that was it. And we actually did do that just for anyone wondering. We did have a party on a pirate ship. Mm-hmm. Where we all dressed up as pirates. <laughs> I don't even know why. Do you know? It, was, it, was not, it was just... No idea. For about 10 years, whenever you did a Google search on me, which, you know, I do every day, obviously, (laughs) that was the first image that came up under my name was me dressed as a pirate. And I was mortified because I'm trying to build a serious career for myself post-Nova. And, yeah, that was just there on the internet forever. Yeah, and you know what's worrying about that is that like on any ship or in any, you know, kind of department, there's always roles to play and your role was actually ship wench. You were not a pirate, you know, like you, <laughs> you were... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, just thought I'd attack, just trying to bring your confidence levels down. Just yeah, trying to chip thanks, away at your confidence, Lazzy. <laughs> so, so, yeah. let's talk about... Anyway. When you when you went to Nova, well, well let's backtrack. Mm-hmm. Let's backtrack because I want to know when you first realised you were funny. When did you first realise that? Was that back at school? Because you've talked to me about how you you were a bit of a handful as a kid, and you've told me about yeah. times when you were the class clown. Is that when you first realised? Oh, look, I, I kind of knew that I was uh, an idiot and that I was entertaining and that I could distract people, but I didn't really kind of. You know, the, the, the epiphany and the, when the penny dropped for me was I was working in a bottle shop when I was about 19 or 20, 19 I think I was, and I was working in a bottle shop and um, I was going to a party after work uh, on a Friday night and um, I jumped on the train, rolled up the party, had a few beers there and my brother goes, Mate, where have you been? And I said, oh, I've been at work. And he goes, well, everyone's waiting. And I said, waiting for what? And everyone was standing around. I was going what's going on here? Like, this is a bit odd. And he goes, mate, they're all waiting for you to get here. And I said, I, don't, I couldn't, I just could not figure out what the hell he was talking about. And he said, they're, they're here. everyone's waiting for you to get here. So, you know, you can tell some jokes and be entertaining. And I went, what? And I realized, like, I, I just kind of went, I was a bit dismissive of it. And then later on, like, maybe it was, you know, later that night or days after, I really can't remember. But what I took from it is that people there the party were waiting for me to arrive because when I arrived I would kick things off I would you know and I remember I would I had a circle of people standing around me at the back of you know somebody's barbecue just drinking beers and I was just telling stories about how I caught the train there and about you know some guy had seen at a train station um and 
you know, what, whatever the stories were, and people were gravitating to me. And my brother said to me that night, he said, mate, you don't get it. He said, you're a comedian. You're just not doing it properly. He said, you just, mm. you, you are, that's what you are. You're doing comedy. What you do when you do this thing, that's comedy, mate. So and I went, oh, okay. And he said, so why don't you stop pissing about and why don't you just, you know, kind of get the balls and go and, and do it on stage? It was my brother who pushed me. And so within probably six to 12 months of that, that uh, moment, that epiphany, I just went, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give this a crack because it feels good. It feels whatever that is. If that's just, if that's comedy and that makes me feel that way, then I'm going to go and do that. And that was it. That's when I kind of realized, I, that's when I realized I was not just a pest. Oh, it was actually a performance. <laughs> so for me, when I when I think about confidence, I when I get up on stage, talk in front of people, you know, I've done a bit of acting, when I do live TV, whatever, that is one thing about confidence that I know I can do. I've It's scary, sure, but I know I can do it. For me, thinking about doing stand-up comedy, oh, my gosh. So how did you get it together to do your first stand-up gig? Uh, look, to be honest, I don't remember really being that nervous. I, I remember had five minutes of stand-up at a place called the Star Garda in South Melbourne and my dad and my brother came along to watch me do stand-up because that's what happens in the very early days if you stand-up, your family have to come and buy tickets to see you. Um, <laughs> but it was, a, it was a very prestigious room. This is where Jim Owen and Bob Franklin and some really big names in comedy cut their teeth. And... Um, uh, I had five minutes and I got up and I, I remember stepping up on, I, I still to this day remember the setup and the stage and everything about that room. And I remember getting up on that stage and just thinking, this ain't so bad. This ain't so bad at all. The only difference here is that there's more light on me. And wow. I just did my root, my five minute routine and I got a few laughs and I was just like, well, I don't know why people say that's bad. That's fun. That's a good thing. We should do that more. And that was it. Did you know at that point, like, did you have that feeling when you walked off the stage that that was, that was your purpose, that that was what you were put on this planet to do? Yeah, I, I kind of went, that's when I went, nah, this is, this is something I should probably have a crack at. Like I got off, and, off stage and had a beer with my brother and my dad and even my dad who, you know, he was a real raconteur and a, and a great um, uh, student of comedy. Um, he said, mate, that was actually, that was actually not bad. And like he... He probably wouldn't have said it. He wouldn't have said anything bad, but he, and he wasn't effusive, but he kind of recognised that for me, you know, with all my incredibly complex daddy issues, I was like, wow, this is awesome. You know, I, I was wrapped. And I think that really encouraged me. So I just, um, I just went, well, I think I'll, I'll just do this again. And then I reckon uh, within six months, I was, I was, it was just my, that was my life. It was in, it was done. That's amazing. So then you and you and Rosso met and so began an incredible kind of period of your life where you went from being on the dole to being on Triple J. And even though you weren't on Triple J for that long, it was only, what, two years you did the drive show. People still talk about it. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, it's one of this – it's amazing what people bring up, um, you know, 20-odd years later. People remember things that I just don't remember. And then when they remind me, um, I, I, it absolutely blows my mind. I was at a pub in Clare Valley, um, oh, this is about two years ago, a year or two ago anyway, and I was having some lunch with, uh, with my business partner actually in Clare Valley looking at some wineries. And um, 
So I was leaving the pub after a pub meal and this bloke who was like high-vis truck driver, like prop, his truck was out the front. He was a 100% truck driver. As I'm walking past, he just he said, excuse me, and I said, yes, mate, and he's looked at me dead in the eyes and whispered, bird of prey. And I just oh went, I, I just, I just, my head just, it was like a beer can in space. It just crumpled in on itself. And that was it. And he said nothing else. And I just, I just started laughing. And that was a joke. <laughs> that was an obscure, a very, very obscure reference to a fat boy slim joke, yeah. a, a song that Rosso and I had made a big thing out of in the 90s. Um, you know, out of that, just that same, we used to prank phone call people by ringing up and just playing that sample, which was Bird of Prey. And then, I remember this. Yeah, and it was a huge thing. So anyway, this guy, 20 years later, a truck driver from WA pulls up in Clare Valley and just drops that on me and I just went, wow. Yeah. So I went I went outside and I stabbed the tyres of his truck because I don't like being reminded <laughs> of the past. And then I ran. <laughs> Oh, my God. So then when Nova approached you and within the space, like Nova was massive and it was just a timing thing, right? It was a moment in time you guys had this particular brand of comedy that just resonated, hit the zeitgeist. Within the space of a couple of years, you went from being on the doll to being on billboards to being number one. Talk about, I mean, were there moments during that time? I mean, I, I was working with you, but we weren't having like deep conversations about how we were all feeling. We were just getting on with it. But were there moments where you were like, you were, you had sort of imposter syndrome where you're like, holy shit, how did no, I get here? No, not me. Not me, Blasey. <laughs> no way. Not me. No, 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 no. No, Don't, no imposter syndrome, no. I, 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 I only really understood what imposter syndrome and it, it literally had to be explained to me um, about two or three years ago when somebody explained to me, I've gone, but but what if you are awesome? And they go, yeah, but the, the idea is that these people, everyone else thinks they're awesome, but they don't think they're awesome. Do you understand that? And I was going, no. Hang on, I, what? <laughs> hang on. So hang on. Everyone else thinks you're awesome. I get that. Yeah. But you don't think you're awesome as well? And they're like, yeah, that's that's imposter syndrome. I went, nah, nah. Got a myriad of problems. That's not one of them. But no, nah, it wasn't. I didn't. I didn't have imposter syndrome. I think that I had a. Um, I, I've always had confidence, and I've always uh, and I've got this confidence because I'm not afraid of um, certain fears. You know, and everyone has fears, and I think fears are what restrict you, and your, your fears are what can dominate you. But my fear was not performing. My fear was not challenge you know like I loved taking dangerous challenges you know whether it be physical or otherwise um I've always enjoyed you know I love when people say I can't do something and then I prove them wrong um you know particularly with a challenge um I like those sorts of things so I was very very confident in those days and you know it's it's an interesting thing that you learn later is that you know the difference in confidence and what actually what confidence kind of means you know I had a lot of bravado and, a, and a, you know, a, a pretty healthy ego. But, you know, when it goes too far, it goes into arrogance. And when it goes into arrogance, it actually sours everything else that you do because you've, you've actually gone too far up the spectrum. You know, it's, it's out of balance then. And that's something I kind of realise more now at this age than I, I knew, certainly that I knew then. I just thought everything was just going to be like this forever. And after, we, after you stopped working at Nova, 
it was not long after that that slowly and surely so and it did have a lot to do with working with you Blasey too because you know we had a great dynamic we had a great little system in place there and it was a very very nice balance and I'm incredibly affected by my environment um, and that's something that I've learned as well I'm amazingly affected by my environment to the point now where I just I don't do toxic I just don't care and there's there's a reason why I'm not doing certain things in my life and in my career it's because I don't like toxic environments and I don't like toxic people because they pull me down I'm a sponge I've always seen myself as a sponge if I'm around good people good energy good environment I'll just soak it up and I'll just throw that back out if I'm around toxicity I'll I'll absorb it and then I have nothing else to give but put that back out. So it's, you know, for me, it's kind of refractory. I don't, I, if, if I'm around a, a healthy environment, that's what I'll create. And so a shift in that dynamic, a shift in that equation, therefore affects me. So therefore that affects my confidence. And then bang, you're into a spiral. And it was, for me, there was a, a definitely a downward spiral for a period of time. Um, and I don't think that, you know, I'm um, necessarily as, confident as I was when I was, you know, in that peak period of, of uh, when I was working at Nova with you and Rosso, it was, you know, that was an awesome kind of like, you know, real, it's a youthful exuberance that you got combined with confidence. But it was like, kind of like bulletproof, but like superhuman bulletproof confidence, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, Teflon. It was, you know, like I think I got until I reckon I was about 30 before I ever really experienced um, you know, any kind of real bumps in the road in my career. Like I just didn't, I, I didn't, it, it's the, you know, any bumps that I had, they didn't really affect me. I didn't really care because like you say, you're Teflon and you just don't feel them. Um, but it's not like I hadn't, I hadn't had a taste of failure. I knew what failure was. I had to repeat year 11, which was one of the most humiliating pieces of my life. But um, it, it's, it was, I don't know, it was just, I was fine. I didn't really, I didn't really dwell on it. I didn't think about um, about where I was or, or contemplate, you know, what was going on. But at the time, it was, like I said, it was really kind of an energetic um, confidence as opposed to a confidence of oneself. Yeah, yeah. So when did you realise, you were talking about the time you realised you were spiralling and it was like it was becoming toxic, toxic from external circumstances and then as a flow and effect toxic within. What did it take for you to recognise it and then do something about it? Uh, look, you know, it's too, it's too easy to say it's an industry. It's not, it's not a person, it's not an industry. It's about what you allow yourself uh, to absorb and allow yourself to become um, and how much you allow other people to dictate your happiness and your confidence. And I'd given over too much of that um, to other people. It's as simple as that. I'd, I'd allowed myself um, to put too much faith in other people, to put too much confidence in other people, to um, have my best interests at heart. And that when that turned out to be ill-fated, it was crushing. It was really very, very devastating. And then, you know, there was, there was times in radio where I just, just my confidence would just be shattered working, you know, no matter what radio station I was working at, there'd be times when um, I think, you know, I hate to say this, but it's, it's true. There's just certain people at certain times and certain places that whether they knowingly do it or not, control you as a creative, they control you 
through controlling your confidence because that's, you know, that's the reins that you have on yourself. When you're a confident performer and you can do what they can't do, what you can do naturally, effectively and easily and they can't do it, you've got a magic trick. And that, that for some people, they find that incredibly threatening. So the only way that they can control that is to control your confidence and keep you in check that way. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's good when you're blowing out. Like I said, when you push that confidence spectrum too far up, it goes into arrogance. That's good. That's a good comeback measure. And good people will balance you like that. But other people will seek to control your confidence, to control your personality, and dictate what you do by controlling your confidence. And they do that in some really kind of uh, subversive ways. Yeah. So how did you how did you get out of that hole? Um. Look, I mean, it wasn't as simple as, as leaving radio. When I left radio, when I left Triple M a couple of years ago, that was one of the happiest years of radio in my entire career. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. There was moments where I, I was frustrated and annoyed, but just generally, you know, I loved going to work. I loved my team, great producers. Just It's just a great situation. I loved it. Um, and it was really important for me to leave radio after 20 years, button off 20 years exactly, button off, on it, uh, leaving with good terms. You know, I still go back to Triple M every now and again and do bits and pieces with them and for them. But um, I, I wanted to leave all my bridges intact, my relationships intact. I didn't want to leave sour. I didn't want to leave bitter. And if I left earlier, I probably would have left with that feeling. So I left really, really good. It was a good experience for me to leave. And then, <coughs> excuse me, the, the confidence and the understanding of confidence has come more recently. It's been since I've been out of radio and, you know, I've done a lot of uh, soul searching and self work, and and trying to get some understandings about myself, my personality, what affects me, what drives me, what motivates me, and that that's kind of driven me. The the, the experiences that I've had since leaving radio have given me the the the, the basis of where I'm at right now. Oh it's definitely gosh. it's been all on me. I love this. What have you What have you done? What modalities have you explored to get that deeper understanding? Oh, look, to be honest, heaps of stuff, heaps of stuff. You know, I had moments where um, I compare leaving radio. Radio is an institution. It's like I compare it very much. I see a, a, a parallel to people who leave the armed forces and particularly the special forces where you're working at a really, really high pace, a high you know, level in um, a, a very, very demanding occupation for a long period of time. And you, that's what you know and that's what you do and it's a discipline and you work hard and that's what you do. And then when you leave, for the first year, it's just like, oh, man, this is amazing. How good is this? I'm out of, I'm out of the, the, the trenches, as it were. And then after a year, you just go, hang on a second, who am I and what do I do? And you lose yeah. identity and that's very common. Yeah. It's very common with soldiers. And all of a sudden you just go, who is this new person? What is my new identity? What is my new persona? Who am I? What are, and that just, that spiralled me. It, was, it wasn't straight away after leaving radio. It was a, a little while after that I, um, I really lost my identity. And because I lost my identity, I lost my confidence. And my confidence is a huge part of my identity. Yeah, um, And I... So to answer your question, I, I was I did everything. I, I went and saw uh, I went and saw a psychologist. Um, to be honest, it was not it was not overly helpful for this issue. I had, it was nice to have a chat, but I didn't walk away going, "Oh, I'm cured." 
Um, yeah. I spoke to my GP. Um, I even tried, you know, like a very passive form of, of medication for a very short period of time, like a calmity, but I was just like, no, it's not, that's not for me. Uh, I went and did a, a 10 week meditation course, which was excellent. Um, yeah. That was really, really good. And that started to make me realize about controlling my own mind and my own thoughts. And I still, I still practice um, meditation every single morning at the same time at about 5.30 in the morning. I, I practice meditation every day. Can I interrupt here and tell you meditation has probably been my number one biggest go-to helpful thing to do for, for regaining my confidence and I also now meditate. Yeah. I would love to say that I meditate every day. I would probably miss a day once a month because I have to be honest there but I do that first thing. The first thing I do after I have a drink of water is I meditate and I did a Vedic meditation course, uh, where else but Byron, <laughs> but it's been amazing because what, <laughs> what it does is it makes you realize that you can separate yourself from your thoughts and that you are not your thoughts. So you don't identify with every thought or feeling as though it is a fact. And that's just been enormously helpful for me. Mm. Oh, no doubt. But look, it's, it, the thing about meditation is I've always been open to it and I've tried it before, but it's it like if every single person in the planet was to practice meditation every day, it, we would have a significant shift in the way that we deal with ourselves and the society and everybody would just actually calm down a little. You know, it's incredibly important. And, you know, the, the fact is, you know, I, 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 uh, I have a lot to do with um, special forces, ex-special forces um, operatives. And uh, I've got lots of friends who have been in service at an incredibly high level, you know, um, battle veterans. And uh, you know what they do? They practice meditation every day. So, you know, these these people are warrior elite. You know, these guys have done things that we can't imagine. And you know what they do? They meditate because they mm. understand the balance of mind and body. So, you know, I don't have any kind of, um, you know, uh, weirdness about meditating it is absolutely set your mind first go through your systems and then after you know i have a very kind of uh, i suppose controlled or, or uh, strict regime that i follow every single morning and it really helps me to, and help me enormously with my confidence that's amazing so what else do you do so you wake up do you meditate first yeah i meditate first usually um that's the first thing i do I, the first thing i do is i have a coffee because i like it um yeah i have uh Coffee, yeah, just a bit, espresso and water, and I have some water, and then I sit down. What I, I, I usually meditate for about half an hour, and uh, once I meditate, then I usually kind of look at my goals for the day. You know, I set out everything. I probably added to them from the day before, but if there's anything that has popped up in my mind, I'll make notes on a whiteboard and, and go right out. And then, after I've done that, then I will uh, sort my family out and make sure that my kids are fed and ready for breakfast, help out and fulfill that that box of, you know, making sure that my family is a priority in my day. Mm. Um, and then I will exercise uh, for usually 45 minutes, an hour, something like this morning I went for an 8K run. Um, I'll run and then I'll come back or do something else and then I'll um, – you know, do some authoring. So I'll, I'll write. So in my case, I know people like to write journals and diaries and stuff like that. I don't need to hear from myself on that level. I'm not. And Frank, I'm just not going <laughs> to. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. I've tried, I've tried to be Anne Frank. I can't do it. Um, so instead what I do is I, 
um, elect to write little comedy pieces each day. And every day I sit down and I, I write something. It takes me about half an hour and it makes me feel good. It's a real trigger. So it, it makes me feel that, uh, you know, I'm fulfilling my personality, my persona, which is I'm a funny guy. So I, I reinforce that every day. I reinforce that I've got, you know, um, uh, an understanding of my own mind. Then I reinforce that I've got a good physical, um, you know, uh, output or a good physical um, response to my day. I set my goals, which means that I've got a clear understanding of what I'll do. And then I reinforce that with authoring of writing comedy um, because that just, again, reinforces who I am, what I do. And I, when I tick those boxes, when I've got all the four of those things done, I can do, then it's nine o'clock in the, in the morning and then I do work. Mez, this is amazing. I feel like you've undergone like a big evolution from what you used to think confidence was and I guess it worked for you then to something really much deeper and much more meaningful now. It's absolutely transformative. I was, you know, there was a period there where I was, I was completely lost. I was just genuinely like outwardly I think everyone was just going, oh, Mez is the same, Mez is the same. But inside I was just burning. I just... And it was about my confidence. It was about my identity. As I said earlier, you know, my identity and my confidence are so intrinsically linked that I had lost it and I didn't know how to get it back for myself. Now, I was the person who gave it to me in the beginning and then I allowed other people and other circumstances, I allowed that to be taken away from me. So I had to regain that. And, I, you know, I lent, I, I said, you know, I, I've, I have a, a constant communication with, um, ex-special forces members and just looking at the way they do things relates to the way I think, you know, a lot of kind of shared beliefs and shared principles and, and morals. So, you know, I think that some people can go and, you know, Pete Evans might be the right person for you to to lean on and get advice from. I mean, particularly if you want to activate <laughs> your nuts. But my Whoa. my nuts, I've got two kids, they do not need to be activated. My nuts are not to be activated. But the... Um, <laughs> See what I did there, Blaz? It was very yeah, clever. I, I did. Um, yeah, is that, very good. Uh, but but I think there's I think if you if you want inspiration or if you want help or you want guidance, you've got to find the voice that makes sense to you. It's like music, you know. Like some people will hear one singer and they'll just you know one voice and it's very distinctive to them and they really really like it. Um, and that that resonates with them. And I think it's the same when you're looking for mentorship, uh, guidance, coaching, whatever it is. Um, you know, I've had a meditation coach and he was great, but I can't, I can't connect to him any further than just learning how to meditate where, you know, there's certain individuals that I talk to them and I just go, oh, hang on a second. When you talk, it just, it just, it, it embeds itself better in my mind. I understand. And I think it is that, that kind of thing, you know, with a lot of, like I said, a lot of people have walked away from, um, forces have a period where for the first year or so it's a party and then they, and no matter how strong they have been, no matter how good they are, no matter how kind of weaponized they've been in the past, they are subject to their own um, fallibility because they have an introspective look at themselves and they just go, who am I now? Who am I now? I was that. Who am I now? Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about how you've reinvented your career. You've invented a job for yourself, which brings together some of your biggest loves, comedy and beautiful wine. 
where did you get this idea from? And well, congratulations. It's amazing how you've done this. And you, you've just Thanks, decided to build a life for yourself, which is pure joy. Yeah. And it is. And it's awesome. And I love it. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm here at my desk. And I've got three books of about wine in front of me that I'm, you know, I kind of constantly refer to. I, and one of them is one of my um, uh, study journals for my uh, exams from uh, last year for uh, level three, Wesset, which is, you know, I don't want to brag, but it's like it's a reasonable wine qualification. So I've got myself qualified in, um, in wine uh, a couple of years ago and then I just kind of upgraded my qualifications. But the pivot for me was, um, first of all, it was just an idea, you know, like I said about radio. Radio, you have a great idea and then you've got to bring it to life. Um, and somebody else would fund that. Whereas this one, I had an idea and everyone goes, oh, that sounds like a good idea. But I realized that I was the only person who could bring it to life. And it was in my last year of radio, at the very start of the last year of radio, I trialed Grapes of Mirth, which is my, my company where we host um, large-scale comedy events and wineries and we do all sorts of stuff for the, you know, it's expanded now. I do, you know, Zoom tastings and, um, you know, uh, sessions on wine. I'm doing dinner tonight. I'm a writer and contributor for Delicious Magazine. You know, I've, I've really kind of moved into that. But it started with an idea that I just thought of a, a winery is such a great place and I really enjoyed being them. I thought, well, why don't I, why don't I, do, why are people doing comedy here? And yeah. that was literally it. So I just kind of spoke to a couple of people and the first person I suggested it to was like, yeah, nah, I don't know about that. And I was like, all right, well, I'll, I'm not going to convince somebody of a good idea and I believe that very strongly. If you've got a good idea and you believe it, don't try and convince people more than once that it's a good idea. Just go and do it. So, Oh, that's good advice. That's really good advice. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. If you know it's a good idea, go and do it. Go and do it. A lot of people stop at the first no. They they sort of doubt themselves because you're always feeling a little bit wobbly whenever you've got a new idea and then you bring it out into the world. And a lot of people do stop when they get that first no. Oh, yeah, and that's the thing is that you're going to get no's, you know. Uh, that's going to happen. There's always going to be no's. And because a no is easier than a yes, that's, just, it's, that's the only reason why. So you, you need to find people don't go and find people you know love the word no. Find the people you know who love the word yes and, and take your ideas and your dreams to them. So when you, when you first started out, you, you, you had the no and then you still believed it, you backed it. So what happened then? So I approached another winery and um, I spoke to them. I said, look, I've got this idea. And it was a guy called Steve Panel, who's one of the best winemakers in the entire country in McLaren Bar. And I said to, to him and to his staff, look, I've got this idea. And they're like, yeah, that sounds pretty cool. And they, they kind of were experimenting with events and they got beautiful, beautiful surrounds in, um, in McLaren Vale. And uh, so I said, yeah, all right, let's, uh, let's do this. Let's have a look at what we can do. And we set it up and it was just instantly successful. And, you know, we've been very, very fortunate with our events over the last couple of years that, you know, they've grown and expanded and moved around the country. But we've created an incredible environment and a community, both with the people who attend and with the comedians who perform. Um, but it was, you know, it was courageous. It was brave. And my confidence, I suppose, to, to back myself, which I've always had, I've always had this confidence to back myself into things. If I, if I truly believe them, I'll back myself into the hilt. And so I just went and did it. And then I just went on, you know, rinse and repeat. And that's kind yeah. of where it's at. But I'm not afraid. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not fearful of, of doing things. 
you know, my fears lie in, in other in other realms, but it's my fears are not, uh, you know, I'm not held back by the fears of doing things. I'm held back by fears of other things. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to know, we're, we're getting to the end of our time together, so I've got a few rapid-fire questions I'm going to throw at you now. So what would be a mm. quick confidence hack that you can give people who might be where you were, they might be where I was, but they're feeling like they would love a quick confidence tip that they can reach for? Okay. If you have self-doubt, and this is what confidence is about, you know, the opposite of, of confidence is self-doubt. If you look at self-doubt as a purely bad thing, you're wrong. It's, it's about balance. And confidence is the balance in between. This is the, the quick hack, right? Think of um, at, at the left side and the right side, and in the middle is confidence. That's where you want to be. You want to have confidence. On the left-hand side is self-doubt. On the right-hand side is arrogance, right? Now, you don't want to be arrogant. You don't want to be so confident that you become completely devoid of human emotion and you become selfish and you become unable to, you know, be um, aware of other people. That's too far to the right. On the left-hand side is self-doubt. That's you sabotaging yourself in another way. But in the middle is confidence. It's a healthy blend, but you need both. You need self-doubt to stop you from going into arrogance and you need a little bit of arrogance to stop you from going into self-doubt and in the middle is confidence. That's awesome. And, you know, for ages I I thought the best way to go about feeling confident was by just ignoring the self-doubt and now I find when I have the self-doubt or when I have the fear I kind of lean into it a bit and I've realized that confidence is not the absence of fear it's feeling the fear and knowing that you're capable of still doing the things that you want to do and being in control Mm -hmm. being in the driver's seat and putting fear in the passenger's seat that's what it's been like for me. Yep, absolutely. It's awareness, but what you're talking about is awareness. And the more awareness you have around, not you need you need internal awareness to understand external awareness. You know, don't worry too much about the rest of the world. If you can kind of master your internal understandings, then you'll have a better ability to master the external. Right. So, you know, I, I, all the self work that I've done on myself to to understand myself, understand my fears. To, to the fears never go away, but what you can do is you can kind of douse them and and bring them down you know you don't need them roaring like a fire they can be on a simmer but they will always be there you can't always think that you're going to get rid of those but the more self-work you do on yourself allows you in my circumstance it was like going well hang on a second I create my own confidence I'm the one who does that and to create a confidence I need an environment which is healthy for me and so that I'll create that you know I can't be reliant on other people yeah, absolutely. Now, I know you're a big reader, but is there a book you've read uh, that's really helped you on your way in your confidence journey, or it might be more than one that you could recommend? Oh, look, I've got one in front of me, which is interesting. Um, I read this a little while ago. It's called Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins, who's a, an ex-Navy ah. um, SEAL. I heard the audiobook yeah. version of that, which he narrates. It is extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, he's pretty. He's he's at one extreme end of the scale. But um, I read a, a manuscript for a book that is going to come out. Um, I can't mention it, but it is an ex special Australian special forces operator and talks about confidence and, and you know leadership and team building and you know self doubt and how you contribute and how you build your, basically how you build yourself to be stronger. 
And that I found that really, really good as well. And one big takeaway that I've got from uh, from this author, um, uh, his name is Bram Connolly. I don't mind mentioning that. Um, but uh, when I've seen him speak or when I've spoken to him over the phone or whatever, one of the things that, that uh, really kind of resonates with me is that with um, – with mental health or, men, sorry, with mental uh, toughness, people, as a military guy, people are always asking about mental toughness, mental toughness, mental toughness. You don't want to try to get mental toughness. And all the special forces guys I've spoken to say the same thing. It's not about mental toughness. It's about mental fitness. Mental fitness will make you mentally tough. You want mental fitness. And mental fitness means physical fitness and for me that's a, there's a huge link between being physically confident and physically healthy and having a mental health and mental confidence um so you know that's another hack that you know i got from bram is don't don't aim for mental toughness aim for for mental um fitness you know do the things you know make commitments to yourself and fulfill those commitments and you will automatically feel better. Like my routine every day, every time, every time I go through my routine, I tick off those boxes every day. I'm reinforcing to myself that I am the person that I believe that I am to be. Yeah. Yeah. And the person who you, it's very intentional, the person you want to be and how you want to show up in the world. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to know, what do you do for pure joy? What's, what's something that you do that doesn't have an outcome, that doesn't have a goal attached to it? What do you do? I love drinking, Blousy. I love it. <laughs> That's your job now, though. <laughs> yep. Yep, I do. I love tasting wine and, and talking about wine. I'm going to go and uh, see my friend Mike Benny. Uh, later on today, who's a, a wine critic and an expert, like one of the best in the country, and uh, just talking about wine and, and tasting wine. And it's not about being drunk at all. It's really not. It's actually just about, you know, having such a complex thing to discuss and to share. And that's the thing I love about wine and that's what I love about comedy. And they are too genuinely, they're the pillars of what I do with grapes and mirth. And, you know, people, as you identified at the beginning, Blousey, is, you know, I found my two loves. And what I love, I love people. I really do. I love people and I love sharing. So I love, I love, you know, when I love shared foods, I love shared wines and shared experiences. And, and that's with grapes and mirth, you know, you're sharing comedy and you sh- and wine you share, you share a bottle of wine with people. And that's what I love about it. That's the difference between wine and a vodka cruiser is, you know, you share wine. <laughs> so you have a shared experience, which means you're communicative. I feel like we should get a recommendation from you right now. What's a beautiful bottle of wine that we can uh, that that maybe we haven't heard oh. of that we should be checking out? Well, Blousey, I'm going to give you one because I know that you're in Brisbane, and there's a, a very poor misunderstanding that um, Queensland doesn't produce good grapes. It actually does. There's a region called the Granite Belt, which is about three four hundred kilometres inland from the Gold Coast, and the Granite Belt is a cool climate region. And it can grow some exceptionally good grapes. Um, so my recommendation would be uh, from that region, I'd have a look at a, a label called Le Petit Mort, which means the small death. And they make a wine yes. uh, in the old style. Which, yeah. Do you know it? Yes. Well, and there's also been a, um, it's made me laugh because there's a movie called that as well. But it refers to something yeah, no, else. That's about <laughs> masturbation. It's about masturbation. Yes. It's about masturbation. <laughs> Let's use the word for what it is. It's about masturbation. <laughs> No, not so much. Sorry, it's about climax. Climax. Sorry, for me, they are one and the same. Anyway, let's move on. Um, 
All right, so La Petite um, and in particular, what variety? Yeah. Saporavi. Saporavi is, and this is the reason why I think it's really interesting, is that they, they make that wine in um, the ancient way in clay pots, you know, earthenware, the way wine was first made long before barrels were even invented. And you've got to remember that wine was actually invented before the wheel. That's the human priority system right there oh for you. Oh, my gosh. So, um, yeah, right? Um, I love that. Thousands of years. So, so uh, they used to make it in clay pots, and that's how they, they make some of their wines there. I don't know if they make all their wines that way. I haven't actually been there. But they make Saparavi, and Saparavi is the ancient Georgian variety and possibly the first grape to be used in wine production. It's a proper ancient because Georgia is the home of, you know, the, the, the first signs of wine production in the world, and Saparavi is from that region. So it is a really, truly ancient grape. All right, I'm going to put their contact details and the details for that one in the show notes too so people can go and check them out. I'm definitely checking that one out. And my final question for you, and this has been such an amazing chat, I really have loved because we, as I said before, we rarely had these deep and meaningful, I mean, we did from time to time, but we were, the business that we were in was brightening people's mornings and making people laugh. So we were often just engaging in banter and laughing our heads off non-stop which was wonderful but I've also loved this conversation with you so I'd really love to know what the future of confidence looks like for you and what you're working on in yourself right now that will take you to where you next want to be in your life I think that it's uh you got to understand that you don't just come to the end of uh the the, the journey it's it's like um it's not even a marathon. It's a never-ending road um, to confidence and you need to kind of maintain it. I don't think that it ever ends. I think that you've just got to understand that it, it requires constant work and it is absolutely achievable, right? And it's absolutely, you can get your confidence back. There's things that you can do, you know, there's cognitive things that you can do to trick your brain into, you know, becoming less passive with self-sabotage or self-doubt. There's lots of things that you can do to improve yourself and you will get that confidence back. But for me, it's about, you know, understanding how I get confidence, how I lose confidence and trying to support the things that give me the confidence and stay away as much as I can from the things that rob me of confidence or or give me self-doubt. And also too, very importantly, you know, not to get too deep on it, but it's a good and healthy thing to know your pain understand i used to say this about comedy many many years ago if you if you you'll get to a stage in your career where you have to know why you do what you do you have to know why you're a comedian what makes you do what other people won't do and there's a reason for it and it's usually it's it's usually based in a pain a childhood pain and to know your pain is to give you the opportunity to grow from it you have to know it you have to know the reason why you are what you are and the way you do things and you can change your behavior but you can't change that coding, that that genetic makeup. It's there. You know, you've those. It's too embedded in you. So if you can find the reasons why you have fear, if you can find the reasons why you have pain or doubt, um, and just say, okay, they are never going to go away. But I'm going to work on those to make sure that they just stay very much in the boot of the car, and I stay behind the the, the front wheel of the car, or not front wheel of the car to get run over, uh, behind the, the, the steering wheel of the car. Good, yeah. great. I, I love a mixed metaphor, um, but I think that's I think that's 
I think that's a really uh, genuinely, I think that's a, a thing that most people who have experienced loss of confidence and regained it, possibly like yourself, Blaz, that you, you learn is that it's ongoing and it's a commitment from yourself. And, you know, you've got to make the commitment to, to looking after yourself. Definitely. But I think, you know, for me, it's it's definitely a daily practice now, but it has been the biggest gift for me. It, uh, I just, I, I'm a completely different person to the person that I used to be. And my life is just so much richer. I won't say that I have less fear or um, nervousness or self-doubt, but I definitely know how to think about it in a different way. And I look at it through a different lens and that's been incredible what a what an amazing opportunity yeah and that's it and you know what you can kind of measure or monitor is what you can control so you know if you can understand it then that's the first step of it and that's what you can do you can't always just think that you're going to get a cure there's no cure for it I've so enjoyed our chat today thank you so much for joining us and I know that so many people are going to get a lot out of this so thank you Mez Uh, absolute pleasure Blousey and uh, you know the fact that you know for so many decades now I've been an inspiration to women in their 30s who were lacking a little bit of confidence Um, and you know if anything I've just been a lightning rod for young women (laughs) who are are looking for advice (laughs) secondhand from ex- ex-Special Forces members uh, to be that guy there for those women in their 30s who actually just probably want to do some yoga um, and get on with their lives. It's been a real pleasure to be their inspiration for so long. I'm kind of like the Lululemon of um, women's issues in Australia. Um, So it's been a pleasure, Blousey. What an amazing conversation. I feel really honoured by how honest Merrick just got with us about everything he's been through in the past few years and the kind of deep work he's done to come out the other side. I feel like men are sometimes a bit more reluctant to share that they've had therapy or dark times or that they've tried medication. And I love that Merrick is so honest that we all have struggles and you have to lean into the shadow sometimes and accept that it's there. I really thank him for opening up and I know it will help a lot of people to hear that even a wildly successful comedian like Mez, who really comes across as the epitome of confidence, has had a time where he struggled to find it and now he's redefined it for himself. If you found some inspiration in this episode, it would mean the absolute world to me if you hit subscribe now and leave a five-star review. And because we are a brand new podcast, I'd be so grateful if you can help get us some cut through and get the word out there by taking a screenshot, sharing and tagging Merrick at Merrick Watts on Instagram. He would love to hear from you. And of course, follow me, Katrina Blowers, or the Instagram account, Claiming Your Confidence for more confidence tips and behind the scenes info. We have so many more great guests coming up who I'm really excited to share with you. And please share this episode with anyone you know who would benefit from hearing Merrick's story and his incredible confidence tips because courage really is contagious. I hope you're having a great week. Until next time, thank you for listening to Claiming Your Confidence. 